Hello, everyone, and welcome to Discussions in Dragons, the podcast where my brother and I take an in-depth look at the world of 5e and all things Dungeons and Dragons. Opening and closing music credit to Will Savino at patreon.com slash musicd20. I'm Britton. And I'm Jaren. And this week, we're continuing our beginner-friendly series where we discuss each class for all those who are unfamiliar or interested in playing a specific class. This week, we're discussing Bard and Monk. So, Jaren, it is your turn to go first. Um, I'm excited to hear what you want to highlight with Bards. So, take it away. Right. So, Bards are a really fun class. I think they're a great place to start if you're not sure of what you want to play. Um, They are the support class in D&D. Um, they are a full casting class, which as we've discussed before means that they get access to third level spells once they hit fifth level, um, so on and so forth. Um, but unlike other full casters that we've talked about before, we, I, I know I've covered wizards and druids where wizards get to do these really powerful transformative and damaging spells. And then you've got druids that are really into, uh, communicating with nature and manipulating, uh, the natural world around them. Um, bards as the support class, their spells are stuff that uh, buffs their allies, heals them up, um, gives their, their allies improved dice rolls, and decreases from enemy dice rolls. Um, they are the performers of D&D. And if we look at the player's handbook description of bards, they typically refine them to, uh, or confine them to musicians and orators of the like, those that can kind of manipulate sound uh, in order to tap into the arcane. Uh, but I think in uh, our modern games, um, the way that I like to play anyways is that bards can really be any type of performative art, uh, not necessarily just somebody that plays the lute or uh, recites poetry. It could be anybody that does performance. Um, so, for example, maybe your bard wants to be someone that is the, a sketch artist, and in the midst of combat, they do a quick sketch and draw their ally standing victoriously over the enemy to inspire them. Uh, maybe they're a, a dancer and they want to do this distracting dance to um, decrease an enemy's rule and distract them. Um, it's really up to, to you. It's your own creativity of what kind of performer your bard wants to be. Uh, the thing that they're all about is this thing called bardic inspiration. It's this ability that what they get to do is with a bonus action, um, they can uh, inspire an ally. As long as they're within range to be able to see and hear them at 60 feet, they, that ally gets a D6 which they can use for 10 minutes. And what they do is um, they can spend that D6 uh, to add that roll to any check, save, or attack roll um, after they roll the D20 before they know the result. So it just kind of gives them a a boost to uh, succeed on it. And they get to uh, have a number of these bardic inspirations uh, equal to the charisma modifier, which they refresh after a long rest. once they level up, they hit 5th level, they can refresh that Bardic Inspiration after any rest. So you get to kind of hand it out like candy at 5th level. Um, and then there's an optional rule in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything that lets them use this really cool thing, Bardic Inspiration. Um, somebody that has that die can use the Inspiration to uh, increase the damage dealt if they're casting a spell, or increase the hit points restored if they're healing. Um, And like I said, it starts as a D6. It increases as you level up. Uh, So at 5th level, you get a D8. 10th level, you get a D10. And 15th level, you get a D12. Um, And at that point, you're getting a lot of uh, Bardic Inspiration usages, and you're just kind of handing them out to everybody. So that's kind of what the class is all about. They also get this thing called Song of Rest, um, which lets you do your performance whenever your allies are taking a rest, and they get to regain a little bit more hit points um, if they're using their hit die to restore hit points. So yeah, keep in mind, bards are all about performing and using that bardic inspiration to give their allies a boost. 
Uh, now the main stats for bards, as you might guess, is charisma. They're a charisma-based class. They are the ones that are really good at engaging with NPCs, uh, trying to win them over to their goals. So they're using stuff like persuasion, deception, intimidation, uh, performance, or any anything that's based around charisma. Um, now I will say that there's a lot of ways to role play, and if the thought of being somebody that engages with NPCs is intimidating, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be you actually having a dialogue with an NPC. It could be something as simple as telling the DM, hey, I want to go and try to persuade those guards to let us in. I want to go talk to that patron at the bar and see what they know about the thing we're looking for. Um, and they'll have you make a, you know, a charisma check or persuasion check or whatever, whatever check is appropriate. Um, so if the idea of being right in the spotlight is intimidating, don't worry, that's not necessarily, you know, what what D&D has to be about or what bards have to be about. It's just what they're really good at. Uh, now, their typical proficiencies, they do get uh, as, as, a, as a base, as a starting point, they're proficient in light armor. So they get a little bit of, uh, you know, ability to protect themselves. Um, they're proficient in simple weapons, hand crossbows, long swords, rapiers, short swords. Um, even though they're typically not doing a lot of melee damage, they do have the ability to defend themselves. Um, they can be proficient in uh, up to three different musical instruments of your choice. And I think this is by the player's handbook. I think this assumes that we're still going by this old definition that bards have to be musicians or orators. Um, I think if it were my game and someone said, I want to play a bard, but I want them to be, uh, I want their performance to be tarot cards. Or I want, my, I want their performance to be, I want them to be a dancer. Or I want them to... Um, you know, paint pictures or whatever it is. I, you know, certainly they can be proficient in that set of tools that they do their art with. Um, their saving throws are charisma and dexterity. And the skills that they get at when they start off at level one, they choose any three that, that they want. Um, probably you're picking the charisma-based skills, which are, like I mentioned before, um, the things like persuasion, deception, intimidation, and performance. Um, although it really depends on what kind of bard you want to make, what the, the story of your bard is, where they came from. Um, and then the other thing is at level two, you are just so good at everything that you become a quote, jack of all trades. This is the named feature for bards at second level that for anything that you're not proficient in, you can add half your proficiency bonus to a check. Um, so all those skills that you didn't start with at, at uh, right off the bat, you, you choose three and the, there's a whole list of ones that you didn't pick. Once you hit second level, any of those ones that you didn't pick, you can just add half your proficiency bonus to anyways. Because um, bards are that great. They're just naturally good at most things. Um, now to talk about some of the main subclasses, I think the ones that I'm most excited about come from Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. And there is one that I want to talk about in the player's handbook. Um, mainly you, you're looking at bards because of uh, what they get at third level. A lot of the later, later level things, many of the later level features um, aren't particularly interesting, or maybe they're just extensions of what they get at third level. So we're really going to just focus on that third level feature, um, which these subclasses you're going to choose at third level. So we're really talking about what you get right when you pick it. So the first one I want to talk about is the College of Lore. Uh, with bards, they call them bard colleges. And uh, the College of Lore is a player's handbook subclass. The third level feature being this thing called Cutting Words. And what you do is, uh, what it is, is you spend one of your usages of bardic inspiration, and instead of inspiring an ally, uh, you can use a reaction and uh, essentially detract from the dice roll of an enemy. Um, you roll your bardic inspiration, you subtract that number from an enemy's attack, ability check, or their damage roll. 
And like Bardic Inspiration, you use it uh, after after the rule is made, but before they know the result. Um, so third level, you're, you're, you've got, uh, you know, potentially three, maybe even four usages of it, Bardic Inspiration. Um, really useful in combat. Later levels, once you get to refresh it after short rests, and maybe you're, the number that you have is even higher than that, you're just using these cutting words all the time, especially if you're taking uh, College of Lore. Um, so, and like I mentioned, the rest of what they, they get isn't all that exciting, but Cutting Words is super great. Uh, the second one is a class, a subclass that I'm personally really excited for and desperately want to try out. And it's uh, this one called the College of Creation. And what you get at third level, there's actually two things. The first one is this feature called the Moat of Potential. And what it is, whenever you give a creature bardic inspiration, whenever you give an ally inspiration, um, you create this tiny invisible moat. And whenever they, uh, this is a couple different things. If they roll uh, for ability checks, um, they can, uh, that moat disappears and they roll the Bardic Inspiration basically with advantage. They roll a second Bardic Inspiration and choose which number to use uh, to help them ensure that they get a good roll. If they're rolling, if they're using Inspiration on an attack roll, um, they possibly deal uh, additional thunder damage. They're, the moat disappears, creates this loud explosion, and the thing that they're attacking has to make a save, and if they fail it, they're going to take some damage. Uh, and then lastly, uh, if they're uh, rolling for an ability save, um, the moat disappears and they regain uh, they gain temporary hit points. Uh, so very useful. And then the, the thing that is uh, really central to the College of Creation, the one that makes me want to pick it above uh, any other thing, is uh, the performance of creation. And this literally lets you create something from nothing. You can create a, a non-magical item literally out of thin air. And um, you can have one at a time. Uh, the size limit is for this non-magical item that you create out of nothing is has to be medium or smaller. Um, as you level up, the size can increase. So you can create bigger and bigger things. Uh, it disappears after a certain number of hours based on your proficiency bonus. The limit for this item is uh, 20 times your bard level uh, in, in gold gold piece value. So at third level, you can create something worth up to 60 gold worth of, of, uh, of value. Um, and you get to do this once per day unless you burn a spell slot. So that's the basics of what of the, the performance of creation feature does. Um, and to give some examples of the things that you could create, the the uh, book suggests, you know, this is an example, look at the items in the player's handbook under the equipment uh, list. So, you know, creating uh, a basic basic weapon or maybe some basic armor, uh, depending on the, the gold value. Um, you could even create something that looks like a gold piece. And I think what I like about this is there's so many creative RP uses for it. Uh, so many creative role-playing uses for it, whether it is, uh, trying to bluff a shopkeeper that, hey, here's some legitimately real gold or something that's worth uh, a gold amount. And then, you know, you piece out before they can figure out that you were not really telling the truth. Um, or maybe, you, you know, you just create a, a temporary weapon for an ally, um, just a basic, a basic sword. You know, uh, in the middle of combat, you just make yourself a crossbow. Uh, so many different things that you can do with it. Um, the other thing that is really neat is at later levels, once you can um, create higher value items um, is your casters might get to a point where they're like, hey, I need some material components that have a gold value attached to it. I need uh, a diamond worth 100 gold. How are we going to track that down? And you as a fifth level bard go, hey, I can just make that for you for free out of thin air. I can make a diamond worth 100 gold for free and then you can just use it to cast your spell uh, You know, within the next couple hours. 
Um, so I think that's really neat too. And that's probably why I'm literally looking forward to this class, uh, this subclass. Then the last thing that you get at sixth level is this thing called animating performance, which I have to mention because it's super cool. And it lets you uh, animate a non-magical item kind of bring it to life and it does your bidding. And I think that's really cool. It kind of is like Beauty and the Beast effect. You know, I can just imagine middle of combat, uh, you got a one-on-one -on -one fight and then you just animate a table to go and fight for you. And all of a sudden this table is rearing up on, on its legs and slapping a guy in the face. I think it's kind of hilarious. Um, so that is the College of Creation. And then the last one, the last subclass I want to talk about is the College of Eloquence, which is also in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Uh, this one really takes advantage of the bardic inspiration. Um, there's some features I wanna talk about at third level. Once you take this subclass, you get a feature called Silver Tongue, which um, essentially means that anytime you are making a persuasion or deception check, when you know, you're trying to engage with an NPC and either convince them to do something or try to you know, lie to the guards, for example, um, and the DM's like, okay, make a, a persuasion check. Any Anytime you roll lower than a 10, it's a 10. You can't roll lower than a 10 with this feature, which is incredibly useful. Um, it's just gonna make you a lot more successful when you're trying to do the thing that you're already good at. Uh, also at third level, you get this thing called unsettling words, which is kind of like cutting words. Remember the College of Lore feature we talked about earlier? Um, but this one is a little bit different. It's uh, only applies to saving throws for, for the enemy. And it's for the next save that they make before the start of your next turn. So it's kind of, uh, kind of a delayed effect. It's still good nonetheless. At sixth level, um, the College of Eloquence gives you this feature called Unfailing Inspiration, which means um, if someone has, uh, if you've inspired somebody with Bardic Inspiration and they decide, I'm going to use the inspiration on this dice roll and oops, I accidentally failed it, they get to keep that die. Where ordinarily they use the inspiration and it's just used up with unfailing inspiration. Once they roll that and it's a fail, they just keep it. They keep it until they succeed with it, which is super cool, which means you're basically just handing out inspiration like candy to your party. This is at sixth level. So it's after you get that point where you can refresh your bardic inspiration usages after a short rest. So you, you've got a lot of them, you're refreshing them a lot, you're giving them to your party and they're gonna keep that die until they fail with it. Essentially means your bardic inspiration is always gonna succeed at some point, which is incredibly valuable. The other thing at sixth level that you get is universal speech. Not necessarily the most powerful by the book feature, but it means that within a certain limit, you can magically talk to and be understood by literally any living creature, no matter what the language barrier is. Um, so a lot of potential role-playing uh, possibilities there. Now to talk a, a brief uh, a bit about the general play style of bards, typically you're not up in the mix in combat. You're kind of staying in the back, um, making sure at all times that you're within range of your allies so you can you know, give them that bardic inspiration. Um, it's got a 60 foot range, so you want to you know, stay somewhat close to your allies and be uh, aware of the, the range of your buffing spells. Um, uh, some of the examples of some early spells that are pretty typical to bards, um, cantrips, you have stuff like Mage Hand, um, which gives you this spectral hand, which you can do a lot of stuff with, uh, lifts up to 10 pounds, can, you can use it to, uh, you know, maybe potentially try to pick a lock, uh, go pick up something within range. Um, you have Minor Illusion, which is super good. Prestidigitation is that go-to spell to produce a small uh, visual effect or sound effect. Um, then you have Vicious Mockery, which is, uh, you know, a decent cantrip for, for dealing damage. First level spells, which are kind of typical, you got Cure Wounds, um, Sleep, which is really good. 
Thunder Wave, Tasha's Hideous Laughter, some good combat spells. Um, second level, you have things like Invisibility, Hold Person, Suggestion. Um, there aren't a whole lot of like iconic third level spells. We talked about Bards being a full caster and getting access to third level spells once they hit fifth, hit fifth level. Normally for full casters, the third level spells is that power spike where they get their really good powerful spells. For example, Wizards getting Fireball. Um, I noticed looking through these spell lists for Bards, there wasn't really that at that breakpoint for bards some good spells but i wouldn't say any ones that are super iconic and ones that are you're really excited for um once you hit seventh level and get access to fourth level spells you get really cool things like dimension door and polymorph which are just bonkers good um so i guess to summarize bards uh taking these early spells you want a good mix of support class spells uh a good support role spells but also maybe like one or two go-to damage spells um because you're going to find yourself often in combat where you're like, well, I have, I've, you know, I've got mostly just buffing spells and I really need to make sure that I'm like dealing damage this round. You want to make sure to take one or two of those um, or else be somebody that relies on, um, you know, shooting a hand crossbow uh, as a ranged attack. Um, and then, it, like I said, ensuring that you're roughly within 60 feet of your allies to give them inspiration on their rolls. Um, and that is my long and, and quick and spiel about uh about bards i'm super excited i'm really excited to try out the uh college of creation bard yeah all those sound really cool and i do want to note that I'm, I'm really excited about the fact that you said that bards can and should be thought of as any sort of performance or artist um i think that a lot of a lot of bards can be pigeonholed because what when we when we think about support classes or needing someone to be support class they kind of get pigeonholed into a like you know cleric all right well you're the healer bard well you're the buffing spell so you're gonna play your flute or you know uh play your lute or whatever and sing me a song and make me feel better but i think that thinking about bards and customizing them to make them your type of artist or an artist that you want to portray makes it more interesting. Um, like like you had said about the sketch artist. What if you are sketching them in a heroic pose? I think that's really cool. I've actually never thought of that. Um, I thought about maybe a calligrapher that's uh, writing the ancient symbols for the, the root of all of these. Uh, you know, if it, if the bard is going to cast polymorph, maybe it will be the the ancient word for shape change that they do a really quick calligraphy sketch of of what that ancient rune might be and then that's how it gets that's how their magic gets created i think you know more bards can be thought of as painters or sketchers or um or even actors i think that would be a really cool way to play uh play a bard yeah and you know i think you've mentioned something like this before but uh i'm just imagining if you're the college of creation bard and you want to um you know create this item out of nothing maybe it's like you've got this magical paintbrush and uh if you've ever done one of those 3d headsets where you're painting in three dimensions maybe that's how you describe it is you just like paint this thing that you want to create in air and it suddenly appears or if you're an actor you just pantomime well i have a sword now it's in my hand and then just it magically appears yeah be because really you've cool. acted it so well that it just appears for you. The other thing I want to uh, briefly mention is we talked, you, you mentioned bards sometimes getting pigeonholed into certain things. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be either the, the bard that is the one that tries to seduce the person at the bar. Um, I like the idea of playing a very serious bard that takes their craft with a great weight. Um, and the example that I draw inspiration from is from um, 
the Stormlight Archive series, if you're familiar. I'm not going to spoil anything, but in that world, uh, there are these people called the World Singers. They're kind of like bards. They take their craft very seriously, and they are the ones that preserve cultures and make sure that uh, the stories are, are kept alive. And they're not just historians, but they are the ones that uh, keep a culture alive through telling stories, and they take it very seriously. Uh, I like that idea as well. So don't feel like your bard has to be the goofy one that goes and tries to seduce everybody. Right. Yeah, maybe maybe that can definitely be an episode about tropes that we find a little bit challenging in D&D. But for sure, I think when it comes to RP, I don't want to tell anyone how to play their character. But I will say that I think it is more interesting to make the choice where you're not playing the horny bard. Exactly. You, know, you might make players uncomfortable. You might make your DM uncomfortable. Um but it's also, I think, the low-hanging fruit, and it's the easy choice. So maybe thinking outside the box of what type of artist they might be and how seriously and how deeply are they devoted to their craft. Absolutely. But speaking of deep devotion to their craft, I want to change gears here and talk about monks for a little bit. Um, now, probably when you think about the word monk, if you if you think about it even in, in now, in terms of, 2021, um, a, a powerful and universal image usually comes to mind when you think of the word monk, usually someone that is dedicated, uh, devoted, and is hardworking in their pursuits of, be it enlightenment or physical perfection or close as to it as they can become. Um, and you would be correct. Even in D&D, monks are dedicated to their studies and uh, keeping themselves physically at their peak uh, levels that they can. And they're trying to keep their minds and bodies um, well enough to be able to perform some of these incredible feats of physical prowess, be it martial arts, dexterity, weapons training, or in some cases of different subclasses, they can even perform magical feats as well. Uh, monks are, I would say, pretty unique in their studies. Now... Monks, like I said, with, you know, these, these physical attributes that they have and their dedications, um, they are typically thought of as uh, martial powerhouses that are brutal on the battlefield. But I will say that off the battlefield with their manipulation of their key or the energy within their body, which we will talk about in a little bit, I think that they can also be very, very useful and um, have some certain features and skills that will come in so much handy off the battlefield. Now, I, I did mention they are a martial class, and that is correct. They are a full martial class. So what that means is martial classes do not have access to magic unless it is granted to them by their subclass. Um, they do not cast cantrips or spells unless it is granted by their subclass. Um, and mostly they will either be fighting with their fists or with weapons. In this case, most monks fight with their fists. Now, what stats you usually want to max while making a monk is dexterity or strength first, based off of what type of monk you would like. Um, some people prefer to have their monks be very nimble, quick on their feet, striking these quick blows. Or some monks can be built like for lack of a better term, brick shit houses. They will not be knocked over. They tower over other people and they use their physical body to take down their enemies. Um, now, the secondary one that you do want to max is wisdom. That's where 
your like key save DC if you are stunning someone or if your subclass allows you to cast a spell, your your DC will be based off of wisdom. So you do want to max either strike their decks first and then wisdom. Um, what's interesting about this martial class, just like wizards and most full casters, they are not proficient in any sort of armor. This may sound a little concerning for someone that is a martial class and wants to be in the middle of fights, but we will discuss why this is actually set to their advantage. Um, their, the weapons that they're able to be proficient with are simple weapons and short swords. Uh, mostly you're going to be using your hands and feet. Uh, you're going to be fighting physically using martial arts um, or any sort of fighting like that. There are There is a subclass called the, the Way of the Kinsei, where they are able to um, create, or not not create, they're able to attune themselves with these weapons that count as monk weapons for them. They are the weapon masters of the monk class. They are strength and dex save proficient, and the skills that they, to give you a, a feeling of what type of class this is, the skills that they are proficient in that you can choose two from, as uh, acrobatics, athletics, history, insight, religion, and stealth. So, moving on, monks do have a lot of quote-unquote things that they have that are unique to them, things that they can do. Um, what you get at first level is a feature called martial arts. So, your practice of martial arts and the mastery that you have over this grants you access to three different benefits when you are not wearing any armor, or wielding any weapons that are not monk weapons. So if you're unarmed and unarmored, you have these uh, benefits. You can use dexterity instead of strength for your unarmed attacks. Um, you can use a d4 for your attacks, and that actually levels up as you level up. That's what's called your martial arts die. So instead of your fists doing one plus your strength modifier or dex modifier, your fists will do 1d4 plus your strength or your dex. And that actually levels up, I think by the end, your fists can do 1d10, which is insane because that's actually more than a short sword and or a long sword, actually. So your fists are doing more than a long sword could at max level. Punch and finally, oh yeah, it's it's insane. And uh, finally, when you use the attack action with your unarmed strike or the monk weapon, um, you can make one unarmed strike as a bonus action. Uh, because your fists are so light and nimble, when you attack, you can immediately take a second attack as a bonus action at level one. Most full martial classes do not have access to a second attack until fifth level. So already you are starting right off the gate, throwing your fists around the battlefield. And the second thing that is that I think is integral to monks and what makes monks iconically monks is their access to what is called key. Now, I've said this a couple times before. So what key is, is the, the mystical energy that flows throughout their body and every living creature. Monks can tap into their key and use it for their advantage. You have a number of level... You have a number of key points that are based off your monk level. So if you are a 5th level monk, you have 5 key points. If you're a 17th level monk, you have 17 key points. Um, and you can spend these key points to do a number of different things. Starting at 2nd level, you can get Flurry of Blows, which is right after you take the attack action. You can take a bonus action to spend 1 key point to make 2 unarmed attacks. 
uh, patient defense, you can spend a key point to take a bonus action to take the dodge action. Or step of the wind, you can spend one key point to take the disengage or dash action as a bonus action on your turn, and your jump distance is doubled for that turn. So that's just a few examples of what key can do. Um, later levels, you can deflect missiles. So if somebody shoots an arrow at you, you can use your reaction to spend a key point to deflect the missile um, or catch it. If you roll high enough, uh, you can reduce the damage by 1d10 plus your dex mod plus your monk level. You can deflect that missile. And if you'd like to, if you catch it, you can throw it right back and it becomes a monk weapon for you. Um, you can also, you know, use stunning strike. So when you attack, you can spend a key point to try to stun your enemy. Um, so there's a lot of things that key can do. And that's not even counting the things that is granted to you by your subclass. And another thing I did want to mention that I forgot to mention regarding martial arts, um, beginning at first level, I'd, I'd mentioned that they are not proficient in any armor, which seems like a disadvantage. However, when you are not wearing any armor or wielding a shield, your AC equals 10 plus your dex modifier like normal plus your wisdom modifier. So let's say you have an 18 in your dex starting off and you've got uh, 15 wisdom. That would mean that your AC equals 10 plus the 4 from your dex mod plus two from your wisdom modifier. So not wearing any armor already, your base AC is 16. And I think that's pretty incredible as just a regular Joe Schmo, basically naked, your AC is 16 because you are so in tune with battle and being dexterous that you can move out of the way of these attacks is how I would picture it. I mean, that's really good. That's, that's even higher than some base classes with armor. I know I've started before and had like a starting with armor AC of like 14. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and Max is t having an AC of 20, um, unless your DM allows you to go past 20 with either items or training or anything like that. Um, now, really quick, I did want to dip into the subclasses. I know that, um, you know, there's a, I, I could talk all day about monks, but there's three that I want to mention that I think are really interesting. Um, the Astral Self, the Sun Soul, and the Shadow Monk. So the Astral Self is a Tasha's Cauldron of Everything subclass. Um, and what they are all about is tapping into an astral body that is connected to your physical form. You are able to manipulate the key in your body to either produce a to produce arms or a visage of your astral self or the and basically a, a spectral suit of armor for the body of the astral self. Um, and at 17th level, you can awaken all of these all at once if you'd like you gain a bonus two plus two to your ac you can uh basically fire off all these barrages of attacks uh with your astral arms i just think it's a really cool class if you guys want to check it out we do actually talk about this subclass specifically in our uh, monk episode of uh, discussions and dragons uh, where we do go in a little bit more in depth there but i think it's really cool that uh, with this subclass, with your key, you are able to tap into an astral body and use that to perform different things. Like with, for instance, the sixth level visage of the astral self, it basically becomes either a face in front of yours or like a head, a helmet of armor. Um, you can see in normally in darkness and both magical and non-magical to a distance of 120 feet. 
Um, you can gain advantage on wisdom, uh, insight, or intimidation checks. Uh, or when you speak, you can direct your words to a creature of your choice that you can see within 60 feet. Um, so making it so that only that creature can hear you. Alternatively, you can amplify your voice so that every creature within 600 feet can hear you. So like I said, how monks have these subclasses to make them useful on and off the battlefield. I think this is a perfect example of um, you just need to find what subclass best suits you and how you'd like to play them and figure out what types of things you'd like their monk to do off the battlefield. Um, another one is the Way of the Sun Soul. I think this one is a little bit more offensive-based. Um, essentially, what you're doing is tapping into radiant damage and your, your body exuding this radiant damage. You are able to send these bolts of sunlight at your enemy. Um, you can spend key points to... Um, attack more than once on your turn at these lower levels and sending these arcing, burning uh, bolts of light, essentially these radiant damage bolts of light at your enemy. Um, at 6th level, you can cast Burning Hands spell as a bonus action. Um, and you can spend additional key points to cast Burning Hands at higher level if you'd like. Um, the maximum number of key points that you can spend on this spell equals half your monk level. So, you know, at 6th level, you can't be spending all six of your key points to cast a huge burning hands. You can only cast three at sixth level. And this is where I'm talking about some subclasses having the ability to cast spells. Some subclasses uh, have the ability to not cast a spell in the same way that you'd think about a wizard or a bard or cleric casting a spell. Essentially, you are using the key points in your body to produce these magical seeming effects. I do think it's really cool, though, that at uh, 17th level, you get a feature what is called Sun Shield. Um, essentially, you are constantly wreathed in luminous uh, light. You shed bright light in a 30-foot radius and dim light for an additional 30 feet. You can, you know, turn the light on and off as a bonus action. Um, and if they hit you, if a creature hits you with a melee attack while you have this light armor on you, you can use your reaction to deal radiant damage to the creature. Um, and that radiant damage is 5 plus your wisdom modifier. So at 17th level, realistically, every time a creature hits you, you can use your reaction, if you have one, to deal 10 damage back to it just as a reaction. Now, I have a soft spot for the Way of the Shadow. Um, my current campaign that I'm in right now, my first character was a Way of Shadow monk. Um, and... I had so much fun. I didn't get to play past, I think uh, they had perished at, um, I think like 7th or 8th level. So I didn't get to play past 6th level. However, even the things, the two things that you have access to before that, I think are so super, super fun. Um, when you choose this monastic tradition at 3rd level, you get what's known as shadow arts. Um, essentially, you have a little pocketbook of spells that you can cast. You can spend two key points to cast darkness, dark vision, pass without trace, or silence without providing any sort of material components. And you do also gain the minor illusion cantrip if you don't already know it. Uh, at sixth level, you get what is called shadow step. When you're in dim light or darkness, as a bonus action, you can just teleport up to 60 feet to an unoccupied space before you uh, that you can see before the end of your turn. Um, you also have advantage, so you have a better chance of hitting the next melee attack 
that you make before your end of turn. Now, if you think about monks plus shadows plus uh, minor illusions and teleporting around the battlefield, you may think of a ninja, if you'd like. I know I did. I was very heavily inspired by Blackstar from Soul Eater. He wanted to, you know, be the best and be renowned as this incredibly fighting prowess ninja, essentially. I'm, I'm trying to think of the words uh, that he would say, but he just wanted to be the best. Um, and I think that it's it's really fun to have this sort of subclass that's more more in line with what someone might think of when they when they think about a a sneaky monk. You get that sort of like ninja feel, and I think that's really really cool. Now, moving on to their play style, I do want to finally say that um, you know I I said something about this before about not telling people how to RP. I just want to preface this by saying that um, I will say that there is one RP thing that I think that people should at least bear in mind when they play monks is that monks are very, very dedicated to their studies and traditions, much like a cleric's piety or a wizard's uh, arcane research. They take their studies very seriously. So I think, you know, it, it may not serve you to play a monk that is just kind of lackadaisical about their training. Usually I think it, it makes it a little bit more fun to have a monk that wants to keep training and getting better all the time. Having said that, um, I do want to say that these monks are frontline fighters. They are in the middle of battle. Um, generally, they they can even outfight some of the toughest fighters and barbarians. Um, and I think that their high AC makes them hard to hit, as their punches can do just as much, if not more, than swords and other weapons. And like I'd mentioned before, their, their subclasses do make them specialized fighters, but the features that you receive as you level up, I think, makes you very useful off the battlefield as well. Uh, one to sight are these spells that you can cast as the Way of Shadow Monk. Darkness, Dark Vision, Pass Without Trace, or Silence, Minor Illusion. All of these things can be cast off the battlefield and have insanely positive results for you. You know, tricking someone into thinking that a bag of gold is on the floor to get them to walk into your trap with Minor Illusion. Um, you see a couple of casters in a corner casting spells you can now cast silence on them to get that to stop or pass without trace using this on your party to sneak past loads of guards um, the list goes on and on but i think that it's i think that monks are just as versatile on and off the battlefield as rogues or even some sort of even some fighters but that is my spiel on why I think monks are cool. I obviously could go on longer and longer because I do have a soft spot for the one monk that I did get to play, but I think everyone gets the idea. Yeah. You know, you mentioned, uh, what, what typically comes to mind when you think of monks is the, is the correct thing. And I actually, the first thing that I thought about was, uh, avatar. Yeah, absolutely. Where that is definitely like a, a bit of a different archetype of, uh, of monk in that, uh, Ang is just so like, you know, jovial and friendly and, and, uh, upfront and out there, uh, less, uh, slinking in the shadows and being sneaky. Yeah. I would say that, um, shadow monks are a little bit more, um, niche, but in general, I would say that monks, uh, I, I think you could play a very charismatic monk if you wanted. I think that would be a very refreshing take as well. 
well, hopefully you guys are excited about these two classes. We, we covered a bunch, and uh, I'm, I'm excited for, for both of those. I don't think I've ever played a monk, but those are some really interesting choices that, uh, you know, really makes me want to give them a try, especially the shadow monk. Yeah, they're, they're so fun. Uh, if you ever want to make your DM irritated with you, uh, please play a monk. They're just really hard to hit, and they have a lot of crazy features, especially at later levels where you're basically running out of the way of damage, not being able to be hit. I think at one point you can run across uh, any flat surface, even up walls, and you can run across water at some point too. Oh yeah, and if you take uh, falling damage, you can basically reduce that to nothing, right? Yeah, because you can get the slow fall, so it just depends on how far you're falling, but you can reduce the damage by a ton to where a broken neck may be reduced to just uh, a sprained butt. Your DM will be annoyed when they say, okay, is that the end of your turn? And you go, no, I want to spend more key points. Yes, exactly. I'd say that uh, monks are the sorcerers of the martial class. <laughs> All right. Well, that is our show for this week. Thank you guys so much for stopping by. Uh, if you like this episode, please check out our future episodes, which are released every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Central. Next episode, we will be dis continuing our beginner-friendly series on an introduction to classes as we discuss warlocks and rogues. This has been Discussions and Dragons. I'm Britton. And I'm Jaren. See you guys next time. <laughs>